The COVID pandemic has created a toxic storm of stress. And I think that is really having a huge impact on the workplace right now. We might have stopped writing those headlines on the great resignation and moved on to the great regrets. But the reality is a lot of people are still planning to leave the roles they're in within the next 12 months. Media industry professionals have been in something of a crisis over the past year. Declining mental health, uncertainty over hybrid work policies, slow-moving DE&I policies, and still large disparity between men and women in career progression and pay. These issues are not necessarily unique to media, and there have been improvements made over time in many areas, but there is doubtless more our industry could be doing to improve the lives of its workers. So how should we unpack all of these challenges? As much of the industry parties and networks away in can at the time of our recording, perhaps getting in some much-needed sunshine and R&R, the always sunny Nicola Kemp joins us in our London studio to discuss. Nicola works as editorial director at Creative Brief, writes a column for us at The Media Leader, and has for a long time advocated for better workplace practice, especially for women and ethnically diverse members of staff. This is her second time joining us on the podcast. Nicola, welcome back. Thank you. For those out there that missed your previous episode, maybe haven't read uh, much of your work, can you tell us a little bit uh, about your background and how you became so passionate about these issues, especially given that your background is really as a journalist? Absolutely. Um, so I actually began my career as a financial journalist. So that was a very male-dominated sector. Mm. Um, and in that space, I specialized in media and luxury goods. Um, and then went on to specialise in media, marketing and trends. So I've always written about trends and I'm really, really passionate that DE&I is not a trend. It's a fundamental shift um, in the workplace. And, and as a journalist and someone working in the media industry, the uncomfortable truth is the majority of my female editors have been made redundant. You know, I've seen mm. firsthand what happens when publishers are really on the sharp end financially um, when they're not able to prioritise flexible working, really, really creating pathways where women can succeed. And that's been something that's always been important to me in terms of something that I reported on for a very long time. It was never officially my job. It was mm. always something that I was really passionate about. And I'm a classically trained historian, so the formation of persecuting societies is something that's fundamental to the way that I've come into journalism. And I think we are changed by stories and storytelling. And I think personally, I've been really lucky uh, within media to be part of Wackle, Women in Advertising Communication London. So one of the biggest personal trends in my career has been supportive women and supportive uh, workplace policies. Um, so it's something that really means a lot to me. And particularly now, I feel like we are at this once in a generation opportunity to reshape the workplace for the better. I have children. When I went back to work after maternity leave, it was very much, oh, you can have four days, but don't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to be really honest about some of the barriers that we might have faced earlier in our careers and being really, really advocates for changing that and getting those barriers out of the way for the next generation because I think we have got a narrative at the moment that's very focused on is working from home killing creativity um, is working from home 
the root of mediocre media work, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. rather than thinking, actually, how can we really leverage what we've been through, as you mentioned, which has had a huge impact on people's mental health and on their well-being. And I'm I'm really, really grateful to the media leader for having this space to be able to challenge some of those accepted narratives and to really ask people to consider some of these challenges through a different lens. Mm. Well, we really appreciate that, that you contribute, of course, uh, and we'll dive deep uh, throughout the podcast into many of the issues that, that you've just touched upon. But also joining us today for the very first time on the podcast is our reporter, Ella Sagar. Uh, welcome, Al Ella. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, apologies to the listeners if my voice is a little husky. It is post Isle of Wight Music Festival. So, um, <laughs> I love yes, that. I'm uh, very happy to be here and discuss this with, uh, with you both. Ella, I know both you and I have read uh, not just Nicola's recent columns, but also a recent column written by another one of our columnists, Jan Gidding. Um, Jan said in her column that the push to hire from more diverse backgrounds has not yet been backed up with more support to help people acquire the knowledge and skills they need to perform well. Um, and she wrote about how there's a significant gap, basically, between efforts to create equal spaces and efforts to create equitable spaces. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit for us on the difference as you understand it between equity and equality, especially within the context of, of working in media, and, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about what you took away from that piece? Yeah, that piece was really interesting uh, because every everyone kind of can get behind equality. They kind of like, yeah, treat everyone the same. That sounds right. That sounds correct. And Jan makes a really good point in her piece that uh, in the kind of fight for a male-female equality, there's been great gains in more workplace policies, more re more legislation, which has really helped other groups, sort of not by accident in some cases, but sometimes it's like, oh, well, maybe we should think about these other people, other groups as well. But equality, treating everyone the same, is not the same as equity, which she explains is going further than equality because people, everyone will need different support has different lived experience, different needs, and a good leader or a good media leader should be a leader of individuals and acknowledge that everyone has individual differences that might need different ways of training, different support. So she was saying recruiting a school leaver is all well and good, but for instance, um, and not just doing a graduate scheme, is, is great, but you need to make sure that there is like a proper support system and training and resources for that school leaver that recognises that they they will have different skills. And that's something that it kind of goes into, there's a lot of talk about, and it's still the case. Let's get in all the, recruit all of the talent, but then the all in census still shows that a lot of talent once is planning to leave in 12 months. Mm. So it's that retention thing and equity and equitable training and equitable leadership would really, I think, address that was my main takeaway. And I think the other thing, it's, yeah, it's kind of acknowledging a diversity hire is kind of, as, as a badge, really doesn't feel great. Mm. Um, but I think that, because it makes you feel like you, you only got that job because of whatever ca characteristics that you might have. But I think trying to flip that and show like, well, actually it, it, trying to value that more and kind of reframe it was another takeaway that I had. Because mm. I personally hate that term, 
And it has been levelled at me a few times of like, oh, you got this job because you're brown or because you're a woman, which is an awful thing to say to someone's face. But yeah, mm. I think there's a lot that can be done in that space to improve the way leaders approach their um, new staff or new promotions or whatever it might be. I felt that the column actually dovetailed really nicely with with your own, Nicola. Um, you, you write about the, the sort of big question uh, that is being ignored in your own words, uh, namely why women in media are still leaving jobs that they love. Um, I think you referred the last time you were on the podcast to this issue as the sort of messy middle um, where people are maybe come into the industry but but don't stay in the industry through their entire career and they might leave somewhere in the middle. Can you tell us, I mean, to turn the question a little bit back around on you, why are women in the media leaving their jobs? I think it's such an important question and I think it touches on many of the things that Jan raised in her column and, and Ella raises as well. I think the question is why women are leaving but it's also why are they not being set up to succeed mm. and where is our intersectionality in this debate because I think there's a lot of different reasons. Um, we've seen the data, we've seen the all-in survey, the Deloitte Women at Work survey, stress, anxiety, burnout. We know that's on the rise. We're also really at risk of normalising quite barbaric ways of working. Um, you know, the Microsoft uh, index showing a 252% increase in the time spent on Microsoft Teams since February 2020. I think there's a lot of things that are happening without really being acknowledged that are affecting everyone, not just women. But I do think it's really important to look at workplace policies. I think we've seen a lot of media companies, um, to Ella's point, on really having that intersectionality and, and having equitable workplace policies. We're having a lot of media companies come out with very shiny branded solutions to the future of work mm. it, whether it's four and flex or it's three days it's this it's that and it's very very tightly structured and that is disproportionately impacting women we're seeing data come out globally as to how the return to the office um, has disproportionately impacted women and that is also leading to women leaving organizations a lot of women that I've spoken to personally, and this is crossing lots of different levels, um, there's been lots of interesting conversations around feeling safe. Mm. And I think collectively, and we can see the data, we can see the proof points that the COVID pandemic has created a toxic storm of stress. And I think that is really having a huge impact on the workplace right now. We might have stopped writing those headlines on the great resignation and moved on to the great regrets. But the reality is a lot of people are still planning to leave the roles they're in within the next 12 months. So I think it's a combination of reasons. I think but flexibility, fairness, fair pay, these things are all really, really important because I've spoken to women who have left because of inflexible workplace policies, nurseries closing, Leaders who've got to the very top of organisations and realised actually the, the structure of that organisation is not set up for the women beneath them to succeed. And I think that's really important because I think we've seen a lot of progress 
when it comes to policies and that can only be a brilliant thing and I think actually we have to give credit to some of the really trailblazing media companies doing that. I think Channel 4's workplace policies for women are phenomenal, not just on a media level, on a business level. You mm. know, they're changing the game. They're changing the the race, really, in many ways. But I think we need to see that sort of policy which matches policy with progress when it comes to closing the gender pay gap, when it comes to having really equitable impact on the women in your organisations. Whereas I, I worry that some companies are rushing to a solution and actually it's not going to be the same solution for every single person. You know, there's going to have to be some flexibility in those structures. So you're pointing to essentially this, this erosion of the flexibility that might have been created by the pandemic. I mean, most of the CEOs or C-suite people that I've talked to have sort of loathed the the hybrid work model um, because you know, I think you mentioned earlier they might say, well, people surely aren't working better if they're not working together in such a such a way, and that may well be true, in fact. But it also, in moving away from it, you might be harming certain aspects of your workforce more than others. Can you expand a little bit on that? Definitely, and I think that's such a good question because I think people are getting confused with hybrid working and flexible working as well within mm. the context of the debate because let's be honest I mean there's all all of us have aspects of hybrid working that are not working for us let alone on a company-wide level on an individual level when we've created days for ourselves where we don't have enough space in our day to go to the loo because we've got back-to-back <laughs> teams meetings so I think it's really really important to be upfront and say actually hybrid working doesn't work all the time in the best way. And there are some things that, you know, I personally love collaborating face-to-face in a, in a creative space. That, that means a lot to me. But it also means a lot to me that we have a really diverse and inclusive workplace where we can access the best talent. And as someone who's, you know, grown up in the media industry, it's it's so obvious to me that we don't have that. We, we exist in a London bubble. We don't have a meritocracy. We cannot say, we can't look to the top of our businesses and say they are filled with the very, very best leaders because we're not giving everyone the best chance. So what I'm really asking people to do is to start the conversation in a different space. There are friction points in hybrid working. You know, I I don't know about you, but when we first went back to the office post-pandemic, you would have thought I was going on holiday. The amount of planning (laughs) I was doing the day before... I still sometimes am having to do Teams calls on my phone on the way to a meeting in real life. I don't think we should expect perfection. And and some companies are remote only. Some companies are, you know, much more hybrid. But I think what we need to do is we need to put the people first, not the office footprint. Mm. And I think particularly for the larger agencies and holding companies, mandating where people work on the basis of your existing office footprint, that is not a creative approach to the future of work. Yes, you have to have a framework, but you also have to have flexibility within it. And I think that's really, really important. So just broaden the lens slightly rather than start with your existing office footprint. Because really interestingly, anecdotally, looking looking at some of the behavioural science behind it some agencies have actually found since they've upped the days that they're asking people to come into the office overall people are coming in less Mm. Mm. 
it's not that they don't want to go into the office. It's just an absolute rejection of that command and control yeah, style of leadership. They don't want to be told how to yeah. work. They, they kind of would rather choose themselves and they, they would resent being told, oh, you should, you need to come in Absolutely. on these days or, or else because it kind of infantilizes you. Yeah, it's kind of like the moment you're told to do something, even if you want to do it, you're like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, just just on the basis of, well, now that I'm forced to do it, it doesn't, it's not as appealing. <laughs> and there's not enough honesty in the conversation. I had a really interesting conversation the other day with a CMO of a tech brand who was very upfront with saying, we asked everyone to come in three days a week and they didn't. And there's a skills shortage of engineers, so mm. they're not going to. And I think actually there's a lot more of that happening than we think and I think the danger is that we're telling a story of solution rather than really getting to grips with, actually, how do we do this differently? How can we make this better? How can we make this work for disabled talent? What benefits has this huge revolution in the way we work had for introverted people? Mm. Like, How can we actually hold on? Because we all gave up so much. Why would we not want to hold on to some of the things that we've actually gained. Mm. You brought up earlier the all-in census. Ella, I know you, you did the coverage on that for us. Do you mind quickly summarizing maybe some of the main takeaways from the census that was reported a few few months back? Yeah, I think it's also important to note that the census is kind of uh, one of a kind in terms of an industry-wide census. And I think a lot of other industries would be quite interested to f do that kind of survey for their own employees. In a nutshell, I mean, it's the second year that it's run and it was the first year that mental health and hybrid working questions were included. And it was one in three in the, across the industry felt stressed or anxious. Now, that doesn't exactly collect, like collate with work-related stress, which was a separate thing where they tried to isolate what what the factors were. But there was a high proportion of, of work-related stress amongst minority groups. So whether that's female talent or uh, disabled talent and minority ethnic talent. And so I think as we've been discussing that kind of, it, there is a disparity in terms of what effect your work might have on your mental health, depending on um, what your background is. Mm -hmm. And and also, again, they found that people from minority ethnic groups uh, were more likely to say that they would be, they were wanting to leave their job in 12 months time but a, a lot of people were still outside of that were still planning on on changing jobs and the main reason was because of salary and um that kind of idea of progression and things that you could you could do better and progress more and get better paid in a different industry which it's not just one person saying it's thousands of people so i think there is still a lot uh, of work that needs to be done because obviously there are issues, but we don't we don't quite know how to address them as an industry. That would be quite a big thing to try and like address. But on a company level, I know that Chris Dunn, who works at Thinkbox um, as head of marketing, he wanted um, as a member of our Future One Hundred Club to be to have ten percent of people working media trained as mental health first aiders, and that would be increased to twenty percent of leadership roles. And just as a starting point, I think that would be just to give a kind of level of empathy towards that equitable leadership that Jan spoke about, that's one element to it. Um, I don't have solutions to other things, but that's one thing that came out from it that I thought, oh, okay, well, if mental health's a problem, then that's that's something to do with training and leadership that could 
help. Maybe not fix it completely, but help. Mm -hmm. In your most recent column, Nicola, I think you you addressed the sort of stress burnout aspect of of working in the industry. Uh, I think you mentioned it was particularly acute for black women as well. Yet the industry has been sort of promoting, working to promote mental health a little bit better, as, as Ella's alluded to. Um, is the rhetoric from the industry in terms of, well, here's what we want to do, lining up with the reality for people? I think that's a really good question. And I think it is a huge societal issue. And we clearly have very, very big um, countrywide, actually global problems when it comes to mental health. I definitely recommend I think Chris is absolutely right I did the mental health first aid training it's excellent but there is a problem in that it's directing people to GPs Mm. I think where possible and I know a lot of media companies do this employee assistance programs that provide access to talking therapies are really really important we have to be realistic of the waiting lists that there are or not really wonderful NHS. So I think that's really, really important. I think if companies aren't recognising that, they are at risk of gaslighting their employees. For me personally, I think the fundamental thing is ensuring that you have working structures which are well-funded. I think in a cost-of-living crisis, it's really, really important to recognise that there are people in our industry that are not being paid the London living wage. Personally, I would like to see two things happen. I I don't want to listen to media leaders talking about mental health if they do not have those basic economic policies within their companies. Are they paying the London living wage? Are they having a policy on fair NDAs? Are they doing the work within their organisation which sets their employees up to succeed? that isn't going to stop their employees from having mental health problems and challenges. But it is really, really important to have that framework in place because you you want to give people the best chance to succeed. And that's hard to do. It is difficult to do um, in London where the cost pressures are so high. And I'm really aware of that at the moment when I talk to people, their rents are going up their mortgages are going up. To Ella's point on the all-in census about salaries, we must be really careful about not talking about mental health in isolation. This isn't a Wellness Wednesday or a one-off yoga class. It's actually looking through really clear eyes. Are we, as an industry, setting up our employees for success? And are we also, as individuals, doing enough to support the organisations that already exist that are doing wonderful work, such as NABs, that really are a safety net for the industry? Are we actually doing enough as companies to recognise and actually financially support the safety net that they're providing for everyone in the industry? Mm, mm. It's a a really important issue. Um, We're recording this not long after the latest IPA touchpoints data came out. I was going to ask about this later, but just to sort of make a note of it, the data found that, on average, UK consumers uh, um, are spending, first of all, more time in, be- partially because they can't afford to, to go out. So that that's probably going to have a, a mental health aspect outside of work. But also, it says that people aren't, are, quote, aren't coping on their current salary across the cost of living crunch. 
So it's a very acute issue. We just got data today that inflation basically stayed the same as it had been from, from the previous report. So it's certainly, I'm sure, on the minds of everyone in the industry, but not necess- sometimes it it's, comes as perhaps concern over bottom lines as opposed to you know, how people are doing within the companies themselves as well. I think the difficult truth is that media companies can't solve all of these problems. These are big economic problems. But we also need to recognise that actually salaries aren't keeping up. If we want to attract the best talent, then actually we really need to benchmark outside the industry better. And that's something that is going to involve changing some of the structures. Anecdotally, I've definitely heard in COVID of people being promoted, but maybe not getting the salaries to go with it. And I think that's that's a real challenge for people. There are companies that have done a good job in terms of having cost of living based assistance to some of their lower paid staff, um, whether that's subsidised travel, whether that's free lunches. But if we're being really honest, it's not enough. And I think there's fundamental questions there that need to be asked around margins. I know that the industry is under pressure from lots of different directions, but I think a London living wage should be the very, very bare minimum this industry should be aiming towards. Mm. Ella, you and I are both young people, we're 20-somethings, so I think young early professionals tend to have perhaps the, the largest issue in this in this area because often early career jobs are, are lower paid, certainly. Even just anecdotally, among other people you know that work in the media industry, either as journalists or otherwise, what have you heard about how people are, are faring at the, at the current moment? I think the main thing that I keep on hearing is that, oh, there's too much to do, we don't have enough people, and I'm working crazy hours. And so there's that kind of underpaid, overworked, narrative and that could go up higher I think uh, Nikki to your point that people being promoted and not being um, sort of paid but I think also not being given the support or the training and it's kind of being given all of this responsibility to manage maybe you've never managed a team before or maybe you are working in an entirely new specialism or something like that is now coming under your remit and you have no idea where to start but you also don't want to ask for for your, your boss's help because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing and you don't want questions around like whether or not you should have that role in the first place and so that it's kind of that rock and hard place sort mm. of situation and is that i imagine that's exacerbated with all of these sort of intersectional issues that we've discussed previously right um, that that could affect certain types of people within a workforce be they if they're more introverted um, if they're ethnically diverse or, or just basically not a white male, mm. uh, perhaps that, that could harm them. I suppose there's more. that story of kind of first in, first out. And I think there's been a lot of us, and Jack, you've written about this, about a lot of kind of publishing companies downsizing mm-hmm. their workforce, workforces and um, I mean big tech companies. I mean, if Meta has to be downsizing and things like that, it's kind of a, quite a scary unstable time that you you want to you don't want to rock the boat too much you want to try even if you are planning on leaving in 12 months you don't want to then leave for a company that might not make it through this next like uncertain phase of the macroeconomic climate Mm. that's the that's something that's going through anecdotally from people that i've heard it's this sort of paralysis yeah so it's a it's a good point to bring up 
because it's almost a sort of pushback, Nicola, on what you're you're asking companies to do in the sense of, well, okay, make sure that that your labor force is being paid adequately. Meanwhile, you have companies that are actually across the entire sector needing to cut their labor force, especially in more growth-oriented tech companies. So they actually need to downsize what they're paying their labor, but really they need to be making sure, as you argue, that that they're paying them adequately. So I'm curious how, how that balances. Yeah, and I think that's a really good question. I think there's a few answers to that. I think obviously there are redundancies in the sector at the moment that's very very true but it's also important to recognize that there are still very big skills shortages Mm. within media there are vacancies that have been open for a very very long time particularly in the middle part of because there's less women less people coming into the industry and so there's less talent coming up through it. So particularly at those middle management levels, there is still a significant skills shortage. And I think that's important to recognise. It's important to leaders to recognise that as well, because I think the danger is we go, oh, look, there's look at all these layoffs. Let's just, you know, press pause on all those cost of living changes we were thinking of making for our staff. The other point that I think is really, really important is the cost of retention Mm -hmm. and the cost of not retaining. I think we spend a lot of money as an industry on hiring. I think we've done a really good job at diversifying that. But to Ella's point, we're not retaining that talent. The cost of churn is huge, and particularly for a client-focused business, because often you're seeing women being squeezed out and going in-house at brands. And then the agency they got squeezed out of is actually pitching for their business. So actually, I think it is important to try and play the long game and for companies to do that. And I think we saw that in COVID. We saw companies, unfortunately, we saw companies let go more people, which then put more pressure on the existing people. And then they had to pay a lot more to get that talent back. So I think there is a cyclical nature of this as well, where companies really need to be careful of not repeating that mistake of cutting too hard too early and then actually paying a bigger price in the long term. Mm. I think Jan talks about the squeezed middle because then what there's, as to your point, the kind of middle management, there is a skill shortage. So the people that are still there or staying there or been recently promoted there have even more to do and and less and you know everyone's got the same 24 hours in a day they can't you can't do everything so i think it's it's that you know to retain that the the kind of emphasis should be on retaining staff and promoting staff training staff there's a interview i did recently with um coaches of color which is a coaching uh kind of consultancy and diversity consultancy and they i had never considered that coaching like that was a, ne- a necessary thing and I always thought it was a something for senior leadership but they're along with me for media for all they're saying no you need to kind of start coaching and um your staff like uh, as early as possible and that helps with retaining them if they feel like they're being invested in and it it kind of just speaks to different experiences need different types of coaching mm. Nicola I'd like to give you the last word before we button up this segment um it's a broad question, so feel free to answer it however you'd like. But but what would you like or, or hope the future of work in this industry looks like, let's say, in you know five to ten years? And what's the way you think we can best get there? 
I think we really need to stop being so utterly uncreative when it comes to the framework in which we're discussing the future of work. And we touched on a lot of things in this discussion that we could actually help support if we did things differently. You know, if you're thinking about junior staff and you're thinking about how much money they spend on commuting, could they work different hours to make that commuting cost less? Mm. I think we need just a much more open-minded, creative approach to the future of work that isn't just so binary of is working from home killing creativity. I also think we need to absolutely elevate different voices in this discussion. Um, I love that Ella brought up coaching. I think there is a huge issue in this industry. And when we look at the all-in census as well, when it comes to retaining talent, particularly minority groups, and I think we just need to think a lot harder about how we are creating structures and processes in which everyone can succeed rather than just treating individual people like a proof point, which actually puts more pressure on them. I'd also really love to see less Gen Z bashing, personally. (laughs) I think that's such an easy solution. I've had some really interesting conversations where leaders have really lent on stereotypes. And I think, actually, I'm lucky enough to do mentoring from Wackel. I have learned far more from those young women than they would have learned from me. And I think it's really important not to lean on those stereotypes and actually listen, listen, understand how much it costs to live in London, understand what the barriers those people face are and how they're different to the barriers that perhaps my generation faced when we came into the workplace. I think if we are a bit more open-minded, we can create a much more inclusive future of work. And actually, it's fun. Mm. It is fun to create workplaces where people are heard, when they're respected. Like, media is all about people. That's not just a pithy line. That's a fact. People work in this industry because they, they're really passionate about the products they create and they love the people that they work with. We've got to get a bit of that love back. And that would be my hope is that we actually take away some of the stereotypes, whether it's stereotypes about women being past their sell-by date in their 40s or Gen Z being fickle and privileged. I think we really need to reset the workplace and create a much more level playing field in which actually the very best talent can get to the top, not just the talent that looks like the guys that are there already. Mm. And, and the, the, the good thing I would note is that if we need creative solutions, it's who better to come up with them than a very creative industry. Exactly. Right? I'd like to, to move us on to our, our next, next little segment. It's now recurring, actually. This is, this is the second time that we'll uh, have done this. And it's a rapid fire section where I'll ask both of you questions on more topical issues. Feel free to respond as quickly, or if you need to explain, uh, feel free to take as much time as you need as well. The first thing I wanted to know is the the Women's World Cup is just around the corner. I believe it begins on the 20th of July. Um, Nicola, I'm curious, because I haven't been paying close enough attention yet. Has the media industry done a good enough job so far in promoting the World Cup and changing the narrative around women in sports over the past year, two years? So I have to be really upfront and say I have a huge vested interest in this because my seven-year-old daughter plays football and I spend most of my life 
on a football pitch. <laughs> um, and I'm a firm believer that this is transformative. The Women's World Cup, we saw what happened with the Euros. Every time these women play, they change the game. The brands need to hurry up. The media industry needs to hurry up. The game has changed and brands are catching up. Mm. I really, really think that any major sponsor should be having really, really serious conversations internally about equity within sponsorship. We are not seeing a fraction of the investment in the Men's World Cup, in the Women's World Cup. We have to close that gap. As consumers, we are changing. Our expectations of brands are changing. And this is such a huge opportunity. I am actually quite jealous of anyone in the space of sponsoring the Women's World Cup because this is like an open goal. Mm. But the investment has to be there and the intention and the authenticity. And at the moment, I don't I don't think we're there yet. It's really interesting from an American perspective because in general, we don't really care about football uh, or soccer. soccer. How yeah. is that possible? <laughs> well, there are so many other sports. <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll get we'll get more into it maybe now that that Messi's come over to Miami or something. <laughs> but but the women's game was the thing in a, mm. when, when I was living in the states that people actually did care about. Yeah. One because they're really good um, compared to you know Amer- U.S. men's team. So it's it's interesting to sort of come here where it's it's the reverse, but there's as you mentioned a huge opportunity. I mean, th- there's no reason why it yeah. shouldn't why it isn't more popular. It probably uh, will increasingly of, become yeah. so. And a lot of UK women players they go over to the states to get the training and to get the kind of uh, the gameplay and all of that stuff and the money. Quite honestly, in yeah. is better in the states at the moment, but it could change. That's something that. Like when Jill Scott was speaking at the Future Media last mm. year, like that she was saying exactly to your point, Nikki, that, you know, brands need to get involved, but it has to be authentic, you know. And I read um, Alex Scott's autobiography recently and how she went from footballer to broadcaster and presented the Olympics and all of that stuff and had to push through so many barriers to get there. But now you have all of these other uh, commentators and um, pundits coming through and you now see on an average, like football, or you hear on a football st- uh, station like talk, talk Sport, or you might on Sky, just you will see a woman on the on the, the couch with um, all of the other pundits, I think, and, you, and you'd hear women commentating on the sport, which you never did before, which and is the, incredible. The atmosphere at the women's game, is, it's, it is different. It's really special. But there's so many amazing players as well. You know, if I'm if I'm feeling a bit down, I watch YouTube videos of Lauren James just scoring goals. <laughs> I mean, she is just mm. incredible. But you just think, where where is the brand investment? And even going to big, I support Chelsea. Mm. Go and watch Chelsea games. The stadiums aren't full yet. They're not full, so that it needs. I feel like there's a danger that because of all the excitement over the Euros and because we're such an impatient industry, we kind of go, yeah, done that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, this is just getting started. It's a long-term commitment. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, next question, Ella, you report on audio for us. Uh, commercial Radio just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Radio Centre, the commercial radio trade body, has uh, just announced recently an action plan as well as a new brand refresh for continuing to expand commercial radio's recent growth. What do you make of their plan, and, and especially in the context of a very changing uh, audience? 
Yeah, it's really interesting uh, having started reporting on audio as a kind of specialism last September that how much change has kind of come about and and I think it's to some extent similar to other industries you know digital digitization is changing how people are consuming their media their content that's uh, but I think uh, podcasts um, who would have predicted that before the pandemic I don't think a lot of people might not have really heard of a podcast and with on-demand streaming now that both of those things um those that are owned by commercial broadcasters are now going to come under Radio Centre's remit. It's that kind of acknowledgement that, all right, well, audio is following people or part of people's day, but it's just the kind of mechanism through which they do it. And so that we've got to acknowledge that and then figure out the best way to advocate for radio. Um, And I think it's just a really interesting space because there's new kind of formats coming out, like, you know, uh, brands doing playlists, for instance, or like doing tie-ups with podcast hosts who are also influencers, who are also doing like other radio hosts. It's kind of all cross-pollinating, mm. which is really interesting. And later on, I'll be going to the House of Commons to as a kind of uh, an, to an event that is celebrating 50 years of commercial radio. I found that LBC was the first commercial radio station. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Uh, I just no. learned uh, when I talked to Matt oh. Payton the other day. Yeah. So um, And so, yeah, I'll be interested to see what everyone else there says to this new remit and to the future of audio. I think it's kind of, I'm a bit of an audio geek, so that's uh, it's a perfect place for, for me. <laughs> it's a perfect place to have you on the podcast because uh, we're, we're part of that in, uh, industry as well now. Last question, Nicola. At the very top of the podcast, I mentioned that we're recording this amid the week in Cannes. I was just curious, uh, have you ever been, when was the last time you went, if so, and maybe reflecting on what you, I know you're not there now, obviously, (laughs) but what do you think is going on, what you've heard is going on, what might be the big takeaways from from the week? So I've been to Cannes lots of times. Uh, Full disclosure, in the interest of transparency, I'm not in Cannes this week Mm -hmm. because uh, I got a bit of advice, which is you will remember missing the school play, but you won't remember the meeting you missed it for, Mm. uh, which also probably applies to advertising festivals. So um, I prioritised a personal commitment. So I want to be really honest about that. Um, I've been to... The last time I went to Cannes was actually pre-pandemic, um, it was a fairly busy can. It was very hot. Um, we had a very interesting discussion, but it was very, very hot um, about <laughs> the use of AI and mm. did some interesting panels with RTL. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting because I think actually a lot of brands are having a bit of a bigger focus out there. And I think that's going to be really interesting because I think historically it's been a place for agencies to come together um, and I know that sort of some of the focus that perhaps Unilever is doing on the front line in terms of being closer to creativity, I think that's going to be an interesting discussion. I expect to see a lot of um, purpose-driven work winning. I saw Period Somnia, which is a great campaign from AMV, lovely use of outdoor. Um, I know lots of people are really cynical about Cannes, but I'm really passionate about creativity and whether you're on the Quasette or you're in a lovely podcast studio in London, that opportunity to actually look back over what's been a very challenging year for lots of people and take a moment to really celebrate breakthrough creativity and the power of creativity to really change the narrative. For me, that's a really, really good thing. Mm. Well, 
I can't think of a better place to to leave it there. That's that's all we have time for anyway. But but thanks so much, both Nicola, Ella, for joining me, for joining the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.